This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Heavenly Father, please speak to us through your word by the power and presence of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Many of us gathered here this past Wednesday for our Ash Wednesday services. Ashes were imposed upon our foreheads in the sign of the cross with these words, Remember you are dust, and to dust you shall return. A sobering reminder of our human frailty. The service was rightly penitential, and we lamented our sins, our selfishness. Yet we were reminded also of God's great mercy. This season of Lent, the 40 days, not counting Sundays, that lead up to Easter, recall Christ's 40 days in the wilderness and provide us with an opportunity to examine our hearts, to reflect on who we are before God and what that means for how we live our lives. Well, this morning I want to begin by looking at that reading from Genesis and this account that we read is part of the wonderful creation story that we find in those first two chapters of the Bible. And by the way, as an aside, it's important that we don't misread these opening pages of the Bible as if they were pages from a scientific textbook. They're not. Genesis is not trying to explain creation by asking how the world came into being. The author is not concerned with a a time scale or the physics of how it all came into being. Those are simply not questions that the writer is addressing. But what we do see in the creation story of the Bible is that the theme of order out of chaos undergirds and inspires the very possibility of science. But this morning, we join the creation narrative at the point where everything is going horribly wrong. The first two chapters establish the beauty and majesty of creation. Everything was good. And the very pinnacle of God's creation was the creation of mankind. Men and women made in the image of God. And that was very good. But in chapter 3, Sin and death, um, guilt and shame spoil this picture. Sin is not something most people like to talk about, at least not in polite company. We, we, We don't think that we're perfect, of course, but we might feel a little more comfortable speaking of our mistakes or our errors of judgment rather than our sin, which is not a very subtle word. But it's an important word, and it's a powerful word that describes, as one author put it, and I'm modifying it um, so that it's appropriate for this context, um, sin is the human propensity to mess things up, where things include promises, relationships that we care about, people we love, our own well-being, and other people's. The truth is, you and I are messed up. And we have a real problem. We're sinners. And and this story from Genesis chapter 3 tells us why this is such a problem. 
When God created the world, everything was good. Adam and Eve were given almost unrestricted run in that garden. You may freely eat of every tree in the garden. It was theirs to enjoy and to, to use without constraint. Well, without constraint, save one. There was one boundary. There was one restriction, verse 17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, says God. And contrary to popular belief, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are not actually secured by the Constitution of the United States. Genesis tells us that life and liberty are only ever secured within God's gracious law. True freedom only ever exists within boundaries. In order for the tree to be at the center, man cannot be at the center. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil may stand for the knowledge of everything or perhaps more particularly for God's knowledge, God's wisdom. Wisdom that we cannot know or grasp. And certainly that which we cannot second guess. Contrary to what we might like to think or others might like to tell us, we do not have moral autonomy. One of the pervasive lies that our society tells us is that there are no moral absolutes. Indeed, Recently, truth itself has somehow become relativized. You know, this idea, well, that's your truth and I have my truth. That's, that's rubbish. It's something is either true or it's not true. I know that's terribly old-fashioned, but it's still the way things are. It's still true. We live in a culture where all around us we, we see fake news or charges of fake news when it might be true. And, and of mass, we've seen mass manipulation in social media. And, and it leaves us wondering, well, where is truth? And in our post-enlightenment world, facts are somehow in a different category from moral values. Moral values, we're told, are relative or exist in the category of personal choice or preference. And so there are very many people who hold the view that there are no moral absolutes. And this leaves people unmoored, unanchored, rudderless, with standards of what is right or wrong that are based on the shifting sands of what the majority might think or we're told that they think. Now, having said that, I firmly believe that a lot of people intuitively know that there's something wrong with that picture. And, and frankly, our hearts confirm it. Now, of course, many moral dilemmas and gray areas and tough ethical situations remain. Of course they do. The world is not black and white. But our hearts know that certain things are evil while others are good. Indeed, that is precisely what it means to be made in the image of God. And Genesis chapter 2 sets down a boundary, a marker concerning good and evil. And the center of life in the garden, and indeed all of life, belongs not to man but to God. And God's restriction is not harsh or cruel or unreasonable, but a boundary designed for man's own good and protection. Freedom without bounds leads to slavery and addiction, and death. But an important aspect of the freedom in the garden 
is the freedom not to trust God, the freedom not to be obedient. And it's our very freedoms that evil will exploit and spoil, turning our freedom into slavery. Notice the snake doesn't come to Eve as the devil. The text tells us the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal the Lord God had made. The voice of temptation rarely comes as the voice of evil. Satan wears all kinds of attractive-looking masks. Now, this passage does not address where evil came from, but it does give us some insight into how temptation works. And we see that it begins to take root in the woman's heart. And it all began with a seemingly harmless discussion about God and what he said or didn't say. The serpent doesn't deny the goodness of God. He just sows a seed of doubt. And he does so in a particularly insidious way. He twists what God has said ever so slightly. He takes God's words of life and freedom and make it sound as if God is mean and unreasonable. Did God say that you can't eat of any of the trees? Well, no, of course he didn't say that. But doubt is sown. And we start to think, well, yeah, you know, if God's put me here and it's all so fabulous, and if he's so good and if he really cares about me, well, why would he deny me this small thing? I mean, if I have these natural inclinations, they should be fulfilled, shouldn't they? I mean, that's just, just how I am. And that's how temptation works. We start to believe in the lies of entitlement. So we think, well, I've worked hard. I've, you know, or perhaps I've been mistreated or taken advantage of. And so I deserve this small selfishness, this small relief from pain, this small indulgence. And it's not going to hurt anybody. It's not true, though. And God had clearly warned Adam and Eve of the penalty if they disobeyed this one prohibition. Satan ignores the wide and expansive scope of the permission and concentrates on the small restriction, which he then exaggerates. And his tactics haven't really changed that much. You know, um, I can't remember where I read this, but there was, there was some elderly Catholic priest who was being asked, you know, how do you cope with hearing all those confessions? It must just be so, so awful. Uh, you know, it must just tear you apart. And, it, and, and he said, well, yes. He said, but, but mainly it's just so boring. You know, most of the big sins in the world somehow end up being about money, sex, or power. I don't know why that is, but it you know, often is the case. Anyway, Satan ignores all the good things about money, sex, and power. He twists the permissions that God has given us and the responsibilities that he's entrusted to us. He ignores the great blessings of walking in a right relationship with God. He ignores the richness of faithful Christian marriages and families, of honesty and integrity. And so he, he concentrates on this tiny and unimaginative list of, of prohibitions. There are relatively few things that God does not allow us to do. And, and when he does not allow us to do them, it's for very good reason. But Satan wants to make God out as a spoil sport and as if the prohibitions are unreasonable. And then he delights in telling us just how desirable those things are. 
How good is the forbidden fruit? And not only does Satan make forbidden fruit sound so desirable, but he thinks nothing of flatly contradicting God. And, and instead, he, he makes us false promises. You, you won't die, he says to Eve, you won't die. God doesn't really mean that. And how easily we believe the lies. And we say to ourselves, well, I'll just have one bite. I'll be fine. Maybe I'll be more than fine. I mean, this could make me a better person if I taste the delicious fruit, which is such a delight to look at and to taste and think how wise I'll be. Think how fulfilled I will be. But once you start down this well-worn path of self-deception, you've already traveled too far. Our Lord taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation, not lead us out of it where we're running to it. And once you get that close to the tree, it's very dangerous because, you know, you can smell the fruit and you can see it and you can hold it and you're playing with fire. But then that temptation, whatever it is, maybe it's an image that you're looking at that you shouldn't be. Maybe it's food or a person. Maybe it is money, sex, or power or status. Whatever it is, it gets a grip on us. And then all, all kinds of things happen. You know, our, our pulse quickens, our curiosity is stirred, and our passions are aroused. And at that point, all reasonable decision-making goes out of the window. One well-trodden path from temptation to sin is that of instant gratification. She saw, she took, she ate the terrible consequence of yielding to temptation is sin. And the terrible consequence of sin is death. St. Paul teaches us in the first verse of our passage from Romans today, sin came into the world through one man and death came through sin. And so death spread to all because all have sinned. And this sin is a sickness of the soul. And the tragedy of the human race, though originally created perfect in the image of God, is that we are now forever spoiled and stained by sin, and we all die. The picture in the garden is such a sad picture. Not only do Adam and Eve become separated from God, but they're also separated from one another, blaming each other, and they're, they're separated even within themselves. Two of the most powerful negative emotions humans experience are guilt and shame. And after they eat the forbidden fruit, shame enters the scene. We read they sewed fig trees together, fig leaves together, and made loincloths for themselves. And when, in the, in the verse right after where we stop, when God comes into the, the garden and is looking for them, guilt gets added to shame. They heard the sound of God walking in the garden, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. And God says, where are you? Why do you suppose he asks that question? Is he mad at them? Is he, is he shouting at them in an accusatory tone, in condemnation, in rage? Where are you? I don't think so. I don't think of God walking in the garden red-faced in anger. Perhaps he was red-faced, but if so, I think it's because there are tears running down his cheeks. And he says, where are you? course he knows where they are 
And yes, I'm sure he was angry in the face of the sin and selfishness and the devastation and evil that has been wrought by this couple's disobedience and refusal to trust him. But in this picture, the overwhelming emotion, I believe, is one of profound sadness. God sees the guilt and shame. And he sees it today. He sees it in us. He sees it here. He sees it in Pittsburgh. He sees it across the world. He sees the hiding and the running and his heart breaks. So many people today live under a crushing burden of guilt and shame. And I often meet people, and I'm sure you often meet people, who, who frankly dislike themselves, they hate themselves, and so they try and hide behind their work or their wealth or whatever masks they can find to hide behind. No longer can they see themselves as the beautiful person that God has made them to be. Instead, they're ravaged by sin and guilt and shame. But it is precisely into this reality, into the depths of this kind of despair, that we have words of hope and life. For God is a God who freely offers his love, his grace, his understanding, his compassion, his forgiveness. Now, of course, that's not to say he doesn't care about sin or that he doesn't take the consequences of sin seriously. He does, so seriously that he's, he sent Jesus. Paul writes in verse 18, Therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of obedience leads to justification and life for all. For just as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience many will be made righteous. And that one man's obedience was, of course, that of Jesus, who humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Okay. So we've looked at how clever and tantalizing Satan can be. We've looked at how Adam fell and Eve. We've considered the dreadful consequences of sin. And I want now to finish up by taking a brief look at how Jesus, the second Adam, did not yield to temptation. Go back to that scene. Jesus had been baptized um, right before this. He'd received his commissioning. And it was at the start of his ministry. And the Spirit led him into the wilderness. And there he was tested. Would he rely on his own strength? Would he rely on the adulation of the crowds? Would it all go to his head? Or would he follow the path of obedience, the path of the suffering servant? You know, I've often wondered about these temptations of Jesus, and I was, you know, completely with the children earlier in their answers to that question. Was Jesus tempted to do this? Yeah, we all know he was hungry, and the devil says, turn a stone into bread, but was he tempted to do that? You know, half of them said yes, and half of them said no. And I think for a long time, I've been exactly there. I mean, he's Jesus. Why would he be tempted with something so stupid? Well, because the great mystery of the incarnation is that Jesus was both fully God and fully human. The things that Jesus was tempted with must have been just as attractive and enticing and full of promise as any temptation that you or I ever face. It was real. Jesus was hungry and tired, and yes, he was tempted. Because, you know, he could have done anything that the devil 
was whispering, and so much more. He could have turned that stone into bread. He could have uh, jumped off the, the, the tower of the temple. He could have just, you know, bowed down and, and have everyone, you know, everything he wanted in the world. But of course, to do any of these things would have been to disobey God and the Father's plans and purpose. It would have been to take a shortcut. It would have been, well, it wouldn't really have worked, but it would have been tempting to think this would be a way of avoiding the path to the cross. So how did he do it? How did Jesus withstand these temptations? Well, yes, certainly he knew his Bible. Absolutely. Yes, he was obedient. He was. And I think these things will have helped him to do what was right. But I think there's something else going on here that's, that's not in the text, something that is deeper. It's important to remember why Jesus had come in the first place and why he was willing to suffer. After all, Jesus was complete with God, with, in the, the beautiful dance and relationship of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He wasn't lacking something. He was there in the beginning with God. He was God. He had all things under his feet, and yet he laid aside his majesty. Why? What was it that enabled Jesus to withstand these very powerful temptations in the desert at the start of his ministry? And then, let's move ahead to the end, the end of his earthly ministry. What was it that enabled him to withstand more temptation in the Garden of Gethsemane? Remember, and we'll get there at the end of Lent. There he is, pouring himself out, sweats of blood. Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. What was it that enabled him to go through this indescribable pain and suffering all the way to the cross? I believe it was love. Love for you. Love for me. It's almost ridiculous. It's shocking. It's breathtaking. It's humbling. It's amazing. It was God's love for the world. This world filled of people with the propensity to mess things up that led Jesus to take such drastic action to undo the consequences of the sin that had wrought death, as we saw in Genesis. And so the heart of Jesus was for you and for me. The judgment and wrath of God that is what we each deserve and that is, is that which we have earned by our own sin and selfishness. But the free gift of God is not like the sin. For whereas Adam's sin brought death to all, the free gift of God's grace in Jesus brings life to all who will receive him. So let me finish with this. When you face temptation, as you will in the next two or three minutes, or, or maybe it'll be longer, maybe it'll be after the service, maybe it'll be this evening or tomorrow, but it's coming, absolutely, guaranteed. Rather than play with the lies or toy with the whispers, remember the great and profound, deep love of Jesus for you. We never have to hide or try to hide from God. Instead, open your heart to him. The evil one promises freedom, but delivers slavery. The God of all creation, the author of life, promises life and gives us freedom. 
Jesus, who was there before time began, who was there in the beginning at creation, saw the world get spoiled, is the same Jesus who came to put right that which was spoiled. It is he who loves you and longs to be in relationship with you. It is he to whom you can turn for help. So whatever temptations you face, and they, they may be very hard, fix your eyes upon Jesus. Look full into his wonderful face. To Jesus, our Savior and his friend. Do that today. Do that every day. Worship the Lord and serve only him. Amen.